Hello listeners, welcome to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast which covers DC comics from the very beginning. As always, I'm your host, Mike Voiles, the creator of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, a website dedicated to comic books of all types. It's been a while since my last episode. I've been very busy with moving, work, the website, and life in general. I'm hoping to get back on track with regular episodes, but we'll see how that goes. Just to catch you up on the format of this show, I'm reading through every DC comic ever published, in more or less chronological order. In the process, I'll be sharing with you, the listeners, details about the stories and backgrounds about the company and the creators. Of course, I'll be putting my own spin on things, but a large portion of what I'm doing involves actual research. I'm not just spouting things off the top of my head. That takes me longer to put a show together, but I like to think that it makes for a more accurate presentation of what actually was in these old comics and the facts behind their creation. I cringe sometimes when I hear wildly inaccurate information being passed off as facts. I heard someone talking just the other day saying that more fun and new fun comics had nothing but funny animals in them before the arrival of superheroes. As regular listeners of this show know, that's not even close to the truth. Previous episodes of my show have focused on the comics and stories published by National Allied under the ownership of Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. National Allied was the original name of the company that would eventually become known as DC. In 1937, Nicholson partnered with Harry Donenfield and Jack Leibowitz to create Detective Comics Incorporated, which is where the name DC comes from. This episode is a little different. Instead of focusing on the stories from a particular issue, I'm going to focus on the stories of a certain creative team, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. These were the young men who created the biggest icon in comics and arguably all of pop culture. That's right, Slam Bradley. Slam Bradley and his diminutive partner Shorty Morgan are known around the world. Slam is right up there with Mickey Mouse in terms of being recognizable to almost every person on the entire planet. Wait a second. You mean you aren't wearing a Slam Bradley t-shirt right now? There isn't a big budget Slam Bradley vs. Fooey on Yui movie in your DVD player? You don't have a Shorty Morgan tattoo? Okay, I guess Slam didn't quite reach the popularity of Siegel and Schuster's other creation, a certain Man of Steel, Superman. I will be talking about Superman today, but the focus of this episode will be on Siegel and Schuster's earlier work. That's right. In addition to the aforementioned Slam Bradley, this duo was responsible for Federal Men, Radio Squad, Dr. Cult, and Bart Regan Spy, all created prior to the publication of that glory hound reporter, Clark Kent. So who were these dynamos of creative comic book energy? Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster were a couple of kids who grew up in and around the city of Cleveland. Jerry grew up with a love of pulp magazines and dreamed of being a writer. He met Joe in high school after Joe's family moved from, to Cleveland from Toronto. Joe was an artist who was constantly honing his craft as an illustrator, but he had no formal training. The boys both contributed to the school newspaper and soon became lifelong friends. Jerry's stories that appeared in the newspaper were humorous 
and often underscored his love for the pulps. Although the term wasn't in popular use at the time, I think it's fair to say Jerry was a nerd. Besides the newspaper, Jerry was a frequent letter hack in the pages of early pulp magazines. He might be considered as the TM Maple of the 1920s and 30s. He even created one of the very first fanzines, which was distributed by mail order. Among Jerry's subscribers were New York kids Mort Weisinger, Julie Schwartz, and Forey Ackerman. But Jerry really wanted to write pulp stories himself. He submitted story after story for publication and was met with only rejection. Eventually, Jerry got the idea that comics might be a venue for his stories. This was the early 1930s, though, the height of the Depression, and there weren't really any comic books. Newspapers were where the comics could be found in those days. The creators of the popular comic strips were even made wealthy from their creations. Jerry partnered with his buddy Joe, and together they created Superman, a character very much tied to the pulps and adventure movies that Jerry loves so much. In 1933, one of the earliest comic books, called Detective Dan, was published. Jerry saw it and immediately contacted the publisher about getting their creation into print. The publisher agreed, but before anything came of it, the publisher pulled the plug on printing more comic books. Other early near misses were with a weekly shopping newspaper in the Cleveland area. Again, after initially getting approval to move forward with the strip, the plug was pulled before Siegel and Schuster's work ever saw print. At one point, Jerry thought Joe's crude drawing style might be holding back the success he wanted so much. He flirted with other artists, both amateur and professional, and pitched them on the, on the idea of drawing Superman. None of these truly panned out, so Jerry and Joe continued to shop around Superman whenever they could. In 1935, Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson launched New Fun, a tabloid-sized comic book featuring original material. Jerry bought a copy, then made contact with Nicholson, looking for work. Although some letters make it clear that Nicholson was at least aware of Superman at an early stage, he asked the boys to provide other strips. The first was Henry Duvall, the other was Dr. Occult. Both saw publication in New Fun No. 6, cover dated October 1935. Jerry and Joe were published comic creators at last, just weeks after Joe turned 21 and weeks before Jerry did the same. The Major wasn't done with the boys yet. Nicholson was launching a second comic called New Comics, and he needed more material. Jerry and Joe created Federal Men for that title. Henry Duvall didn't pan out as a strip and was soon replaced by Radio Squad. In 1937, the first issue of Detective Comics was released with two more strips by the boys, Spy and the world-famous Slam Bradley. During that same year, Siegel and Schuster were producing as many or more pages for the Majors comics than any other creators. There was a lot of artistic turnover at the Majors National Allied in those first few years, largely because he wasn't actually paying the creators on time or at all. Jerry and Joe were certainly making a name for themselves, and of course, their biggest success was still to come. I have covered the debut of each of the pre-Superman features by Siegel and Schuster in previous episodes, 
but since I'm reading every DC comic, I want to follow up on each of these strips. Dr. Occult is the most notable of these early creations, in my opinion. That feature was the first one Siegel & Schuster had published. Technically, it's tied with Henry Duvall, but the latter only ran for five issues. Dr. Occult wore a costume in one adventure and used magic items that gave him special powers. I still consider Superman the first superhero, but these details make the Doctor a precursor of sorts. Dr. Occult's earliest stories were covered in episodes 6 and 8 of this podcast. I left off with more fun number 18, cover dated February 1937. This, is, this issue kicks off with a six-part serial involving Dr. Colt's clash with the Lord of Life. The adventure begins in a hospital where a man found wandering the streets has been taken. He is dying, although the reader is not told the cause. The man can only mutter a few words to the doctors who release the patient into Dr. Occult's care. I find it odd that the hospital would just give the patient to Dr. Occult because he is involved with unusual things. And in this case, the doctor is actually suggesting that Occult take the guy. I guess readers weren't really expected to question these things, but I still found it odd. In any case, that night at Dr. Colt's house, a ghoulish face appears in the window. The dying man sees the face and almost hypnotically rises from the bed. He then tries to stab his benefactor, Dr. Colt. At the last moment, the man breaks off the attack and dies suddenly in the arms of the doctor. The stranger outside leaves unsatisfied. We are then reintroduced to a Colt's friend, Rose Psychic. She had been absent from the strip since Morphine number 7. In her initial appearance, she worked as Dr. Occult's assistant. The dialogue in this story indicates that they haven't seen each other for a while. The two visit a nightclub where they encounter a man who stares blankly. The doctor is called over, and he pronounces the man dead. Not only dead, but the doctor claims that the man has been dead for more than a month. Occult rides along in the ambulance which takes the body to the hospital. A sniper shoots the driver, causing the ambulance to crash. While the passengers are dazed, the corpse is stolen. Dr. Occult heads for home. On the street, he encounters Nita Crane. She warns him of a terrible danger, then runs away. Dr. Occult is shocked because Nita has been dead for a year. He went to her funeral himself. Dr. Occult then visits the cemetery with the police ordering that Nita's grave be opened. Her coffin is found empty. Later, at Dr. Occult's home, he phones Rose, but their conversation is cut off suddenly. Occult's butler tells Rose that his master has fallen unconscious. A short time later, Dr. Occult is pronounced dead. A funeral is held in which Rose weeps for the loss of her friend. At a laboratory which appears to be drawn straight from the mad scientist cliché handbook, Dr. Occult's body is held in an iron lung. While electricity bounces back and forth between glowing orbs, the scientists decree he will bring the man back to life. This scene is very reminiscent of Frankenstein and was ob obviously influenced by it. When Dr. Occult rises, the Lord of Life demands that he serve him and his new life or his new life will end in one month. His first command is to steal a valuable relic from a museum 
with the help of Nita Crane. At the museum, Dr. Occult sees Rose and is forced to run away before she sees him. When he returns to the Lord of Life empty-handed, Dr. Occult is brutally whipped for his failure. While feigning in consciousness, Occult overhears the new master, his new master talk about the drug that simulates death. It is this drug which caused everyone to believe Dr. Occult was dead. Once the truth is known, Dr. Occult rebels. He injects the Lord of Life with that same drug. The scientist makes a run for the antidote. Once Dr. Occult knows what the antidote is, he is able to free himself and the other victims from the servitude of the evil scientist. The plot of this story seems very cliché and predictable by today's standards. That might even be true for the time it was originally published. I can imagine this type of story being influenced by movie serials that Jerry Siegel was fond of as a boy. That being said, it reads very well in this format and shows Jerry's continued development as a writer. While I joke about the look of the mad scientist's laboratory, the artwork was also very well done. Occult's face is nearly indistinguishable from the early Superman stories. The work overall is less crude than the Dr. Occult stories from just a year earlier. Midway through the story, the length of the stories per issue was expanded to, from two pages to four. This followed the trend where each issue contained fewer but longer stories instead of numerous really short episodes. The Doctor Occult feature continued to be four pages in length per issue for the remainder of its run, which ended in More Fun number 32, published just weeks after Superman's debut. The remainder of the Doctor Occult stories, which appeared in More Fun comics from number 24 through 32, were all one-issue adventures. The Doctor opposed more evil scientists, a cult of snake worshippers, vampires, the ghost of an executed criminal, and a zombie master. During that time, Siegel introduces a supporting character, Vin Ellsworth, a police captain. The name is a combination of two National Allied editors, Vin Sullivan and Wit Ellsworth. Siegel liked to reuse names for characters, which is why Morphine number 24 featured an artist named Henry Duvall, who would cause a per person's death just by drawing it. Duvall's name was taken from the short-lived swashbuckler feature that I had mentioned earlier. In the last Doctor Occult adventure in Morphine number 32, Rose Psychic returns as the Doctor uses astral projection to stop a gang of criminals. The adventurer claims it is to be continued, but that would be it for Doctor Occult. The character quickly faded into obscurity as Superman was busting onto the scene. Almost 50 years later, Roy Thomas would revive the character in the pages of All-Star Squadron. He played a role in Crisis on Infinite Earths and has been a part of DC's magical pantheon of characters ever since. More Fun Comics regularly featured another Siegel and Schuster creation alongside Dr. Occult. The feature's name was Radio Squad. The feature starred police officer Sandy Keene, who drives car K7. We learned in episode 9 of my show that Sandy liked to give out spankings for traffic violations. The original title of the feature was Calling All Cars, 
Over time, the phrase Sandy Keene and the Radio Squad was added to the strip header. Beginning with More Fun number 18, the term Radio Squad became the actual name of the strip. My previous reading of Radio Squad left off at More Fun number 16, cover dated December 1936. That issue contained a simple two-page Sandy Keene adventure in which he con convinces a gunman to lower his rifle in order to pose for a photographer with a fish that he had caught. In Morphin number 17, a serialized adventure begins with Sandy tracking down a gambling den run by a racketeer, Dan Bowers. After arresting Bowers, Sandy is told to lay off the gamblers by the police chief. Bowers is quickly sprung from jail with his mind set on vengeance. In reading these stories, Sandy's actions and behaviors toward common criminals reminds me very much of the social crusader version of Superman that appeared in the early days of his strip. Jerry was clearly using his characters to act out against the social injustices he saw in this society suffering from the Great Depression. His own father had met a violent death at the hands of a criminal just a few years earlier. This anger over the rules of society tying the hands of honest men to combat crime was likely a key ingredient in Jerry making Superman act outside the law. In Radio Squad, Sandy is clearly an honest cop, but his chief is telling him not to go after the criminals for political reasons. As we'll see, Sandy has some of Superman in him, and goes after the racketeer anyway. Disobeying orders, Sandy begins following Bowers' gang when the crooks rob a warehouse in Keene's district. Sandy follows them right back to Bowers. The cop catches the crime boss with the stolen merchandise and arrests him again. Bowers threatens to go to the mayor and the governor for protection. At trial, however, it isn't the mayor or governor who bails out Bowers. It's Sandy's own partner, Jimmy Trent. Jimmy lies on the witness stand and claims that the stolen goods were not found in the possession of Bowers. With the dishonest testimony in place, Bowers is found not guilty. Sandy punches his own partner in the face for his treachery, once again showing his Superman-like direct approach. After the trial, the police chief wants to fire Sandy, not because he punched his partner, but because the chief is in the pocket of the racket boss and his lawyer, Amos Twist. The chief doesn't fire Keene, but warns him to stay away from Bowers. Once again, Sandy ignores the advice and refuses to give in to the corrupt system. He arrests Bowers a third time and single-handedly brings in the other members of the mob. This time, though, he has a news photographer documenting the bus. Another trial is held. Sandy tries to, ad to admit the photos as evidence of his legitimate bus. The defense claims the photos are faked. The prosecutor himself won't accept the evidence. Sandy's mission to, sh to stop the corrupt system seems doomed to failure, but the governor steps in. He has observed the trial and seen it as a mockery of justice. Apparently some hand-waving from the governor is enough to get the conviction. Were this a real courtroom? I don't think that it would matter. In any case, Bowers is convicted finally and the corrupt officials are disgraced. Sandy is offered a promotion to police chief, but
but he refuses to take it. He prefers to remain a part of the police radio squad where he can do the most good. As I mentioned, I think this story is very representative of how Jerry Siegel felt about crime and corruption. Unable to do anything himself, Jerry wrote about these injustices and created heroes that championed the little guy. These feelings about injustice may have served Jerry in his own legal battles that would ultimately affect his real life. Schuster's art on these, these stories is typical for this period. Many of his pages are, and layouts are getting to be very familiar. There are some really fun details included, such as when Keen surprises Bowers during the second arrest. The shock of the racketeer at getting caught is shown with his fedora shooting straight up in the air. There is also some power in that punch which Sandy lands on his partner's face. While reprints from this era are extremely rare, this particular story was reprinted in Atomic Comics No. 1 in 1945. This reprint was published by Green Publishing and had several of the story pages out of order. I know the reprint isn't exactly widely available, having been published in 1945. It is a Golden Age comic, so it won't be cheap, but it's worth tracking down if you like Golden Age comics. And it is far cheaper than getting the, all the original books to assemble this story piecemeal. A series of single-issue, two-page adventures featuring Sandy Keene followed. More Fun number 23 involved the capture of a hit-and-run driver. That issue introduces his new partner, Larry Dugan. Issue number 24 was of a humorous nature involving an officer accidentally using the dispatch microphone for a dramatic reading. Issue number 25 shows Sandy catching a smuggler of illegal alcohol. Coincidentally, Harry Donenfeld, who was in the process of partnering with Nicholson to form Detective Comics, Inc. at this time, was involved in smuggling alcohol from Canada during Prohibition. The stories from Morphon number 27 and number 28 are both printed in black and white. Just a reminder that comics from this era were often a mix of color and black and white material. Issue number 30 had both a color and a black and white Radio Squad adventure. It was published right at the end of Nicholson's involvement with the publisher. Nicholson's national allied was bankrupt, and he was forced to sell his titles to his partners, Donenfield and Leibowitz. While many of these two-page radio stories were entertaining, none came even close to matching the emotional drama of the Bowers case. In late 1936, Nicholson's second title, New Comics, was retitled New Adventure Comics. The new title first appeared on the cover of issue number 12, dated January 1937. The indicia did not reflect this change until number 15. Siegel and Schuster contributed a feature called Federal Men to New Adventure. It starred Steve Carson, a daring G-Man action hero. I covered Carson's earliest adventures, including a battle against giant robots, in episode 8. Issue number 11 of New Comics is a single-issue story four pages in length. In it, Carson tracks criminal Nate Devlin to California, where the wanted crook and his gang have taken jobs as actors in a gangster movie. The gang decides to use the staged movie bank robbering as cover for a real holdup. Carson gets there first and forces Devlin to reveal his plan. Carson and his partner, Ralph Venter, then collar the gang. New Comics number 12 takes Steve into another science fiction adventure.
Steve meets Professor Grant, who describes his vision of the scientific crime detection of the future. Grant conceives of an interplanetary federation in the year 3000 AD, which uses a machine sensitive to criminal thought vibrations. The lead detective in Grant's story of the future is Jor-El, who tracks a gang of criminals to Mars. Yes, the man's name is Jor-El, spelled J-O-R-L, the same name and spelling that Siegel would later use for Superman's father in the 1939 newspaper strip. As I mentioned in my Dr. Occult segment, Siegel reused names over and over again in his various stories. Professor Grant finishes telling his story to Steve, which involves a female space pirate named Nira Q. Jor-El captures her, and she is rehabilitated via brainwashing. The professor concludes his storytelling by observing that despite the fact that the current crime fighters lack future technology, G-men like Carson certainly get results. Issue number 13 pits Carson against a rang of dope dealers while number 14 introduces a pair of junior Federal Men. The first few episodes of the Federal Men strip encourage readers to write in and join the Junior Federal Men Club. The adventure in number 14 depicts a couple of kids who have done just exactly that. These kids, Frank and Lonnie, assist Steve, who has been wounded in the apprehension of a kidnapper named Blackie Flint. Apparently, encouraging young kids to take on gun-wielding crooks by themselves wasn't considered endangerment back in the 1930s. I guess this sets the precedent for all the boy sidekicks that would follow in years to come. The junior team was clearly an attempt to connect with younger readers, or at least younger kids, reading the comic. At the end of the story was a coupon and offer to join the Junior Federal Men Club. The club was featured on the cover of New Adventure Comics number 16. That cover was drawn by Craig Flessel, not Schuster. But it did mark the first time one of Siegel and Schuster's characters earned cover status. Beginning in that issue, a text page followed the Federal Men's story, inviting readers to join the club. This was the first attempt by the publisher to market something besides comics. Readers were encouraged to send in 10 cents for membership. In return, they received a button, and some kids had their names printed. The club was set up like a pyramid scheme, with kids earning higher ranks depending on how many other kids they recruited. Text pieces for the Junior Federal Men Club ran in each issue through number 59, published in early 1941. Some of the pieces gave advice for setting up club meetings, creating secret codes, or detective techniques. At least one encouraged kids to stop crime wherever they saw it being committed. This does not seem like good advice to children. If I saw a, a gun-wielding crook, I wouldn't tell a kid to go stop him. But that's just me. The club was a predecessor to the Supermen of America Club that would be established once the Man of Steel achieved popularity. Of course, unlike Federal Men, Superman was a marketing bonanza. The Junior Federal Men Club would return to action in several stories over the next couple years. Over time, they took an, incre an increasingly large role in the feature. Beginning with number 20, Steve Carson himself is relegated to a token appearance introducing the story. The Juniors take center stage. In some stories, like number 21, Carson doesn't appear at all. The Junior team was certainly taking over this strip. 
This may have been because kids found the junior's stories easier to relate to. More likely, however, they were serving as advertising for the club. New Adventure number 23 serves to introduce a branch of the Junior Federal Men for girls. While their male counterparts went after killers and armed counterfeiters, the story involving the girls shows them stopping a woman who is shoplifting stockings from a department store. Clearly there were some gender, gender inequality issues being demonstrated here. The Junior Federal Men text piece from issue number 18 mentions that girls could form an auxiliary to the boys, Junior Boys Club, but at the end of this story, the girls are actually allowed to join the Boys Club. That's a far more progressive approach than some clubs at the time. Still, it's clear that girls were second-class members. New Adventure number 25 combines the use of the junior team with the science fiction elements occasionally seen in this feature. The tale, which is sort of a sequel to number 12, depicts the junior federal men of America of the future. The kids in 3000 AD find a bound volume containing New Adventure comics in a museum. Yes, Golden Age comics survive another a thousand years, and they aren't found in those stupid CGC coffins. Thank God for that. Inspired by the stories the kids read, yeah, they actually read the comics. They didn't just put them in little coffins and never look at them again. The future kids form their own Junior Federal Men of America Club. Siegel's predilection for reusing names crops up again in this one. The villain is named Zator, a name he had previously used in a Dr. Occult story. My favorite Federalman tale from this period came in New Adventure number 19, in which Steve arrests a murderer without any proof. He then tries to find photographic evidence of the crime to get the conviction. In this story, it's Steve's partner Ralph who makes the key discovery in the film to solve the case. The most significant of the Federalman stories from this period appears in New Adventure Comics number 26. The story begins with Steve Carson giving a lecture to a group of young students on the importance of following safety rules, like tackling a crook with a gun as a kid. Uh, that's a good safety rule. Anyway, uh, later we see a group of children crossing the street. Jane, one of the students, is struck by a drunk driver. One of the other kids phones an ambulance, then calls the police. In a matter of minutes, the police respond to the call. They chase the driver, who drives his car off a bridge and falls to his ultimate death. What makes this story significant is that it's the first crossover between two Siegel and Schuster strips. The police who respond to that call are from the Radio Squad feature in More Fun Comics, Sandy Keene and Larry Dugan. It's not the very first crossover between strips. Vin Sullivan's Pincus had appeared in his own strip, plus made appearances in Spike Spaulding, and one short-lived strip called Inch. But this is the first adventure-style strip in comic books in which I've encountered a crossover between two characters from different features, at least at National. I haven't read too many newspaper strips or comics from early publishers to know if this was something that was brand new or not. Did Little Orphan Annie meet Buck Rogers? I doubt it. Whatever the case may be, this was a first, and it was published just weeks before the release of Action Comics number 1. 
Does this crossover establish Radio Squad and Federal Men as part of the overall DC Universe? I guess that depends on your point of view. It definitely establishes both strips as occurring in the same universe, but I haven't found a le link between either of these strips and any that from the superhero universe. So from my point of view, no, it doesn't make them part of the DC Universe, but it does establish a shared continuity between two adventure strips. A shared continuity would later be established for DC's superheroes just a few years later in All-Star Comics number 3 with the formation of the Justice Society. Of the early Siegel and Schuster's features, I actually found Federal Men to be the weakest. Jerry's plots seemed to be far too simplistic for the G-Man, Carson. He regularly took three pages of the four-page stories to set up a plot for a fairly weak one-page payoff. Siegel's stories, didn't, or, Siegel's stories didn't do any favors for Joe's artwork either, as the action was far too sparse. Joe may have gotten some help with the workload as well. The first Federal Men page of New Adventure number 17 looks nothing like Joe Schuster's art. I don't know who the artist actually was. If I had to make a guess, I'd probably say it was Bill Ellie, who did the Nader Master of Magic feature in that same issue. The rest of the story was clearly Joe Schuster's work. This would not be the only time another artist substituted for Joe. Over the course of the year, Jerry pitted Steve Carson against a variety of smugglers, murderers, and counterfeiters, but the junior federal men popped up far too often for my taste. Most of Jerry's stories published the previous year were serial in nature, but beginning in 1937, he opted for mostly self-contained stories. Given that many of the other features at National were still serials, it must have been Jerry's choice to offer single-issue tales, not the publishers. I think the stories could have used more room to be fleshed out. Serials would have helped. Instead, I think the four-page self-contained stories were very limiting, and the quality suffered for it. Shortly after Superman's debut in 1938, Jerry did return to using serial format on Federal Men and I'll cover those stories in a future episode. When Jerry was given more room to work, like the 13 pages per issue he got on the next strip, the results were much better. That strip was Slam Bradley. I covered Slam's inaugural adventure from Detective Comics number 1 in episode 10 of my show. Slam is, of course, the brawny private detective with a passion for fisticuffs. This passion is on display on the first page in Detective Comics number 2, which is a full-page shot of Slam slugging it out with steelworker Pete Graves. Their bout, in which Slam prevails, was just for fun. However, when Graves is found dead a short time later, Slam is brought in by the police for questioning. When Pete's lawyer calls Slam a coward, the detective shoves the man in the face and kicks him out of the office, literally, all this right in front of the police commissioner. While Shorty Morgan, Slam's diminutive partner, tails the lawyer, Slam returns home where he is nearly shot by Pete's sister, Betty. Slam disarms her and hangs her up in the closet. He's produce she produces another gun and tries to shoot Slam again. Clearly, this girl is bent on getting revenge for her dead brother. Meanwhile, Shorty is caught by the lawyer he has followed. 
The lawyer is the head of a gang of racketeers who are responsible for killing Pete. Despite his capture, Shorty is able to leave a note for Slam. After escaping from Betty, Bradley comes to Shorty's aid, finds the note, and goes after his friend. The chase leads to a skyscraper currently under construction. Shorty is taken to the scaffolding atop the building and thrown off the edge. Slam, in pursuit, grabs a cable and swings out from the building to grab Shorty just as he is falling. The panel depicting this rescue is awesome. Very reminiscent of Batman or Spider-Man swinging from a rope between buildings. After grabbing Shorty, Slam goes after the crooks. One falls to his doom while the leader is forced to make a confession to Pete's murder. After dropping off the crooks, Betty apologizes for misjudging Slam. She kisses him. Shorty, as Slam's partner, sees the kiss and demands that some he get something himself, since they share everything. Betty punches Shorty, claiming that it was payback for her partner leaving her hanging in the closet from a clothing hook. This was a typical Slam Bradley adventure from the early days, high on action and fighting, Shorty playing comedy relief. Slam's fight with the crooks on the skyscraper reminded me of Superman stories where the Man of Steel dangled crooks high in the air to get them to talk. Obviously, this came first, predating Superman's adventure by more than a year. Betty even exhibits a strong will and personality that would later be used as the foundation for Lois Lane. Schuster's artwork was very dynamic, although the details are somewhat crude. But if Schuster's art in number two was crude, the artwork on the Slam Bradley story in Detective Comics number three has to go down in history as a total disaster. The story was written by Jerry Siegel, but was not drawn by Joe Schuster. Instead, it was drawn by Jim Bettersworth. I don't know what the reason for the artist switch was. I can only guess that Schuster was unable to meet his deadline, and another artist had to fill in. This is the only comic book work that I know Bettersworth did. A year later, he worked as a cartoonist for Boy's Life magazine. After that, I don't know what became of him. Based on this story, however, I can only hope that he gave up drawing altogether and took a job as a plumber. Because his artwork is god-awful. Even the coloring is wrong. It depicts Slam as a blonde-haired palooka. He's normally dark-haired. As for the story, it opens in typical Slam Bradley fashion with a fist fight involving multiple opponents. Slam then takes a job to deliver an envelope to a man at a fair. The envelope is stolen, prompting a chase throughout the fairgrounds. Eventually, Slam finds the man who hired him is a gang boss, and a rival gang stole the envelope. Slam gets it back, only to find that it contains the combination to a bank vault that the gang, both gangs want to rob. Slam apprehends the crooks and receives a reward from the bank. By the end of the story, I was just happy that it was over. I think I would have appreciated it more if Schuster had drawn it. As much as I want to beat up Bettersworth here, I'll say that the art did improve over the course of the story. I still think that a blind six-year-old with three crayons could do better, but it's improvement nonetheless. Joe Schuster returned to the feature in Detective Comics number four in a story called The Hollywood Murders. The splash page depicts Slam in a shirtless pose flexing his bicep. In the story, Slam catches a killer trapeze artist. 
The story receives publicity, which leads to the job to a job offer in Hollywood as a stuntman. Shortly after his arrival, the studio president is found murdered. Slam solves the case. The killer is the studio manager who hired Slam. After the case is solved, Slam and Shorty depart from Hollywood, leaving behind a lucrative offer to star in the movies. Slam's fortunes were often in flux throughout his early adventures. Often he and Shorty seemed flush with cash. Here they turned down a hundred thousand dollar offer a year to stay in Hollywood. A hundred grand in 1937 equated to well over a million dollars in 2014. Despite Slam regularly earning sums of ten and twenty-five thousand dollars, sometimes he and Shorty were depicted as broke. Maybe Slam had a gambling problem. This story establishes that Slam and Shorty are from Cleveland, the same town as his creators. In issue number five, Slam returns to his old high school. The school is identified as Glendale, the same school where Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster met each other for the first time as teenagers. The principal asks Slam to investigate some vandalism. Slam goes undercover as a teacher at the school, while Shorty disguises himself as a student. Neither is happy about the situation, because Shorty is picked on by the kids, and Slam finds out that the kids are smarter than he is. Eventually, the vandals are re revealed as a gang of bank robbers who hid their stolen loot in one of the kids' lockers. Then they forgot which one it was. The ending is similar to the one in issue number two. Slam gets a kiss from a pretty blonde teacher. When Shorty demands his equal share, Shorty gets a kiss from the homely old school marm. This trope was repeated again in number six and number seven. Slam gets the girl, and Shorty is the butt of the joke. This formula was abandoned with number eight, which shows the boys getting some sleep after a tough assignment. Slam and Shorty are shown sleeping in the same bed, and here I thought it was only Batman and Robin who did that. Though he was based in Cleveland, Slam's early adventures were full of travel. I mentioned the trip to Hollywood in issue number four. Slam goes to Atlantic City in Detective Comics number seven. Slam and Shorty follow a hillbilly bank robber to Kentucky in number eight. The detectives even visit Mexico in number six and the Arctic in number 14. While pretty girls and exotic locales were a hallmark of these early stories, there was little in the way of supporting cast. This wasn't unusual for 1930s comics. However, there were a couple of characters who did pop up more than once. The first was Sergeant Kelly, a local police officer who made a handful of appearances beginning in the very first adventure in Detective No. 1. His role was always very limited. Superman had a similar lawman named Sergeant Casey who cropped up in many of his early adventures. Sergeant Kelly was replaced by Sergeant Gage, who made a trio of appearances in 1938 in Detective No. 15, 16, and 18. The other recurring character was Snoop Dolan, who debuted in Detective Comics No. 9. Snoop was a short, cigar-smoking fellow wearing a bowler hat. He wanted to be Slam's partner, which upset Shorty, who already held that role. Snoop promises that if he can get information on a human fly bandit, Slam will take him on as a partner. Shorty wants to ensure that he isn't replaced, so he follows Snoop right to some stolen goods. Snoop explains that he trailed the human fly and knew where the loot was stashed. The crook then catches them both. 
By working together, the two short guys escape and warn Slam about an attempt on his life. The trio work together to catch the human fly. In one scene, Slam dangles the bandit from a building, very Superman-esque. Since Snoop didn't turn in the human fly alone, Slam decides to make Snoop Shorty's assistant, not his own. Snoop was back for a repeat appearance in number 10, where Slam becomes a boxer to solve a murder. Siegel would later use Superman in the role of a boxer in the newspaper story, The Comeback of Larry Trent. This also appeared in comic book form in Superman number 2. Snoop and Shorty take jobs as sparring partners. They uncover the killers who are plotting to eliminate Slam. Shorty thwarts the plot by substituting a water pistol for the gun that was intended to kill Slam. After the crooks are apprehended, the trio of detectives leave the boxing world despite a promoter's offer to make Slam rich as a boxer. This ending was of course similar to, the, to Slam's Hollywood adventure. That was it for Snoop though. He didn't return again. Even Shorty was missing from the Slam Bradley story in number 11, which involves Slam infiltrating a flying circus. Detective number 12 had Slam and Shorty visit a logging camp. During this adventure, Slam makes another rescue of Shorty by swinging on a vine to grab his friend before Shorty went down a waterfall. The panel depicting the rescue received a full page spread. This was highly unusual for the era. Most stories tried to cram as many panels onto a page as possible. Schuster was clearly using Slam Bradley and its expanded 13-page format to experiment with panel layouts. The feature started out with standard 6 or 8 panel grid layouts, but over time Schuster began using fewer panels per page. Unlike other features, Slam Bradley was regularly making use of a splash page. Clearly the art form of the comic book was being moved incrementally forward. Schuster, though crude in style, played a big part in those advances, although he is rarely credited for it. Schuster art was exciting and carried action well. I think it was a reason for Superman's success, too. A lesser artist might not have been able to carry out the action scenes that the Man of Steel demanded. Without Schuster, I have to doubt that the initial re reader response to the Man of Steel would have been the same. Overall, Slam's adventures of this period are full of excitement, action, and humor. This is my favorite Siegel and Schuster feature from the era. The last of the Siegel and Schuster features from the pre-Superman period was entitled Spy and starred Bart Regan and his girl Sally Norris. They work as spies for an unidentified government agency. Spy appeared in Detective Comics alongside Slam Bradley. I covered the first Spy Adventures, which ran through issue number 5 in episode 10 of my show. Detective Comics 6 picks up the story with Bart and Sally working a case together for the first time. She only became a spy herself at the end of issue 5. Their mission, determine if Army Officer Captain Hanley is guilty of selling secrets to the enemy. To determine Hanley's guilt, Bart uses the Homeland Security Act to permanently detain the captain. Hanley is subjected to many levels of torture. He is forced to listen to Justin Bieber music, watch Polly Shore movies, 
and smell the armpit of every person attending the San Diego Comic Con. He finally cracks when Bart forces him to read the Slam Bradley story drawn by Jim Bettersworth. Hanley cries out, No! No! Anything but Bettersworth! Okay, you caught me. That's not really what happens. Instead, Sally delays the captain in a hotel lobby. While Bart searches Hanley's room for evidence, Sally's tactics fail, and she is unable to stop the captain from returning to his room before Bart has completed his search. Bart is forced to hide in the closet. He then overhears Hanley's attempts to sell the plans uh, to army fortifications to an enemy spy. Bart finds the plans in the closet, and he is then found by the traitors. Sally comes to her partner's aid by charging into the room with her gun drawn. The spies are then taken into custody. This was a short four-page self-contained story. However, unlike the shorter Federal Men tales, Siegel did a good job with the pacing. Like nearly all stories of this type from this era, the spy stories are primarily plot-driven. There is very little in the way of character development. Sally is a bit spunky, but other than that, it's a bit dry. Still, I enjoyed this far more than the Steve Carson adventures in Federal Men. In the next spy story, we see evidence that comics from the 1930s had a very short turnaround time between when they were written and drawn to when the books actually went on sale. This is evidenced by the fact that Detective Comics number 7, cover dated September 1937, and went on sale in August 1937. In the spy story, we are shown a great air disaster involving a dirigible. This is clearly a direct result of the Hindenburg disaster in which the German passenger airship caught fire and burned while attempting to dock at a facility in New Jersey. 35 people, many of them passengers, were killed. It was one of the most publicized disaster in the history of aviation. That event took place on May 6, 1937. So clearly this story was conceived, written, drawn, and published entirely within a three-month time span between when the disaster occurred and the time this issue was published. Many modern comics have a considerably longer life cycle. Granted, this was only a four-page story, so there was a lot less drawing that went into it than goes into, say, a 20-page modern story. Still, I think the insight of how quick the turnaround between the conception of a story and the publication is kind of interesting. As for the story, the burning dirigible in the story is known as Colossus. Bart and Sally are assigned to the case to check for signs of sabotage. Sally claims to have solved the case before the investigation has even begun. Bart allows her to follow her instincts, which lead to Hansen, a manager at Skyways Incorporated, an airplane manufacturer. Sally arranges a meeting with Hansen and tricks him into confessing while recording his voice via a dictaphone. I, I think they're already using uh, the Homeland Security Act here to, uh, to get secret recordings of people's uh, conversations. Anyway, Bart uh, has, has to save her life while Hansi, Hansen tries to kill her. Sally then explains that she got the idea from a newspaper article which detailed that the government canceled a, a large order for dirigibles following the accident to the Colossus. They purchased airplanes instead, which was Hansen's motive. Also of note in this story is the name of the newspaper, the Daily Star. This was the original name for the newspaper which would employ Clark Kent beginning in Action Comics number 1. More single-issue spy missions would follow. 
Bart and Sally were assigned to guard a French envoy, rescue a captured spy, and stop a saboteur aboard a steamship bound for Europe. The spies catch the saboteur in issue 10, then we see the ship dock in Paris in, at the start of issue 11. So despite the fact that these were actually self-contained stories, there was a loose continuity between them, and there was some kind of narrative going on. Many people assume that there was no continuity in the early days of these comics, which really isn't the case. There are many examples in which stories from this era established their own continuity between stories, and, as we saw between the Radio Squad Federal Men crossover, even between features. All that being said, the attention to continuity details was lax. For example, in Detective Number 12, Bart refers to the ocean liner which brought them to Europe as the Colossus. Of course, that was the name of the sabotage dirigible from Number 7, not the ocean liner that was named Atlantis from Issue 10. While in Paris, Bart and Sally uncover the saboteur's contact. Then they infiltrate the French underworld to find an assassin. After spending several issues operating in Paris, Bart and Sally receive a summons to return home in Detective Comics number 14. Once home, the spy duo face off against an evil scientist, an assassin, and a thief selling secrets. Each of the Bart Regan tales in months leading up to the debut of Superman were fairly good. There was a consistency in quality here that wasn't being delivered in the other strips. My one complaint would be the art. Schuster was once again not given a chance to do what he excelled at, which is dynamic action. While the spy stories were drawn competently, they did not convey a high level of excitement to the reader. I often find Schuster's work to be pretty scratchy in form. That was evidenced in the spy stories, and the level of detail wasn't always there. I definitely prefer Schuster's Slam Bradley work, which had a higher degree of action. All these Siegel and Schuster stories that I've covered preceded the publication, but not the creation, of Superman. The Man of Tomorrow burst onto the scene in Action Comics No. 1, published with a cover date of June 1938. Comic books would never be the same. These early stories definitely show the groundwork being set for Superman. Siegel and Schuster both improved as creators over the course of these stories. Of course, the earliest Superman stories were developed before or at the same time as the ones I've covered in this episode. The original Superman story from Action Number 1 was largely a paste-up job done from a proposed newspaper strip created by the Cleveland duo. I plan to cover Superman's debut in all of its glorious detail in a future episode. I also plan to discuss the Siegel and Schuster story, post-Man of Steel, in much more depth, so be on the lookout for more episodes. Lastly today, I'd like to dip into the mailbag a little bit. I got a fair bit of mail from my uh, last episode, and I'll share a couple with you. First one reads, Mike, I thoroughly enjoyed the Mike's DC History episode of your podcast. If you do more of those down the road, that would be great. I do hope you'll get back to the history episodes as well, but I understand the various parts of life sometimes get in the way. As a podcaster myself, I totally understand the difference between easy episodes to produce and hard episodes to produce. But I like what you have to say about comics, old and new, so whatever you release, whenever you release it, I'll look forward to listening. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Professor Allen, host of the Quarterbin Podcast and co-host of Shortbox Showcase. Thanks for your comments, Allen. 
Uh, as this episode shows, I'm diving right back into the history of DC. Uh, there will be more episodes coming. I'm probably going to stick to the history episodes for right now, but I will probably pull out an occasional personal episode here and there as time allows me to. The next email comes from Michael Kaiser. As someone who frequents your site daily for some purpose or another, I found your latest episode to be especially interesting. It was nice to hear the history of the man behind the curtain, and I hope future episodes continue this story. As I am two years your junior, I, was, I too was a huge Star Wars fan, had a mother who limited my comic book intake, and apparently was also very much into Donnie and Marie, though I have no memory of this. Perhaps there's a support group. Mike. Well, I don't know if there's a Donnie and Murray support group. I honestly don't remember that well uh, why exactly I like Donnie and Murray, but uh, it's something I've come to terms with over the years. I certainly uh, have no interest in them anymore. The last email comes from Chris Tolworthy. Hi, it's Tolworthy from the Classic Comics Boards and the Great American Novel site. Thanks for producing such superb content of real unique value. That's as rare as the hen's teeth on the net, and even rarer in conventional broadcasting. I'm only up to podcast five so far, but you have made a convert. I was always a Marvel guy, but Marvel has worked so hard to drive away readers that DC now looks fresher. I hate to tell you, Chris, but DC drove me away several years ago as well, so they're not doing any better than Marvel is. I had to email when I came uh, to your comment about buying low-grade comics, actually reading your comics, and not wanting those CGC coffins. You are a man after my own heart. Comics only have value because of their content. Action number one only costs a million dollars because millions of people have cared about the character. Actually, one just sold for three point something million, so it's three million today. There are plenty of older and rarer books that are worth far more, far less. When we focus on content, we get better comics and a wider audience for the speculators. Yeah, I'm not really into the speculation on comics anymore. I dabbled a bit in the early 90s, but i got to tell you, the speculators these days drive me nuts. There's no reason for what they're doing, uh, and they obviously didn't haven't learned from history, but I, dig I digress. For me, a comic with real life with signs of love and history is far more valuable than a sterile block of paper that never left the printer. One of my favorite comics was an early collection of Mary Tortell's Rupert Bear strips from Britain's Daily Express. A previous young owner had found all the scary witch, witch pictures and scratched out all the faces. I loved that. That's what comics are about. We immerse ourselves in, the, in their world and they immerse ourselves in ours curled up in the in back pockets, splashed by mud, and always dog-eared. The idea that they survive through careful preservation is an illusion. Nobody ever slabbed a comic that nobody ever read. Comics only survive if people care. You care. I salute you. Keep up the good work, Chris. Thanks for your comments, Chris. I, I do agree. I don't think... Uh, slabbing of comics and condition is all that important. Pretty much everything I buy these days is reader grade, which means, you know, good condition is just fine with me. If it's got a nick or a, um, you know, a loose centerfold or something like that, I don't lose any sleep over it. Um, I, I just won't pay mint prices for books that I really just want to read. 
Anyway, that's it for this time. Uh, be sure to visit my website, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, for tons of great comic book information. And keep your eyes peeled for more episodes of Mike's Amazing World of DC History in the very near future. Thanks to everyone for listening.